We have two passages, as you will note, um, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, and Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. We come to the end of a, of a very short series on this covenant life that God has drawn us into, that we live. And so we come to a, a, a time of application, and we'll let these passages be our guide. Hear now the word of God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And now Romans 12, beginning at verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, as we come before your holy presence and before the truth of your word, we do so confessing our utter dependence upon your Holy Spirit. We pray, therefore, for the work of the Holy Spirit, both in the preaching and the hearing of your word. And we also ask for the sanctifying work of the Spirit in us to bring application and a change of heart wherever it is necessary and good, so that we might walk more worthy in the calling to which we have been called as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, as children, and as brothers and sisters in Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Are we good here? All right. No mic? That's okay. That's okay. Thus far, in this short series on covenant life, we have considered the blessings of unity as seen through the text of Psalm 133. A unity in the covenant body of Christ that is not something that we manufacture with worldly wisdom or psychological methods or with the latest business techniques. It comes down from heaven. It is gospel. It is all of grace. And as we repent and believe the gospel, as we manifest the love of Christ in the midst of the congregation of saints, as we put off the old man and put on Christ, God commands his blessing. And it is likened unto the anointing oil flowing down over Aaron's head, down his beard, 
all the way down to the hem of his robe. This blessed unity is greatly to be desired of everyone in the church. We also looked at the happy household, considering Psalm 128, and seeing that in order to enjoy the blessings of a happy household, we must be a people that fear the Lord and walk in his ways. We saw that the root problem that keeps us from growing toward God's plan for a happy household is spiritual neglect. And we need to confess that if we do not know the spiritual condition of our own souls, we are in no position to shepherd the souls of our families. Therefore, we need to study the scriptures and see what we are called to as fathers, as mothers, as children, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a covenant community, and we are to then go and do. And last week, we considered the federal blessings or covenant blessings we know in Christ as the second Adam, and considered the importance of headship from Romans chapter 5. And just as a reminder, when we speak of federal blessings or federal headship, Understand that the word federal comes from the Latin word foidus, and it means covenant. I stated last week that we live in confused times. We need to have a confident knowledge that marriage and family as federal entities are not established by custom or by legislative action of the state. They are not subject to the ever-changing whims of sinful man. God, as creator, has built into the world how families are to be established and give us, given us the definition of and pattern for marriage. And this week brings us to a point of application, of trying to understand what it means to be a peculiar people of God and to live for his name according to the patterns and principles he has given us as his people. How then shall we live? What are some of the common struggles and pitfalls that we should be aware of so that we can overcome and avoid them? What are the blind spots we are prone to due to our own sin and weaknesses or simply because we haven't considered what applications from Scripture might look like? I think some of us, perhaps many of us, would confess that we had few solid examples set before us during our formative years growing up. However, we are not called to stay put in our current or inherited circumstances. We're called to walk in love. We're not in bondage to the sin patterns we grew up with. We have been redeemed by Christ who paid the ultimate price because he loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God even a sweet-smelling aroma. We are new creations in him, and the old things are passed away. As we consider this calling to walk in love, to be followers of God, his imitators as dear children, I will proclaim and confess that this is one of the most difficult things we are called to do, and at the same time, it is one of the most blessed. But how do we do this? How do we walk in love and why is it so difficult? In order to answer these questions, I would like to work through four principles we need to embrace 
in order to walk in love. Principle number one. We will only find the answers to these questions in God's word. The first thing we need to remember is that we do not look to the world for the patterns and instructions about what walking in love means. We look to the word of God. If we look to the world for wisdom in these matters, we are asking to be deceived by vain words and should expect the wrath of God to come upon us as disobedient children. Ephesians 5, 6. Do we really expect to learn how to be a good husband or a good father that is pleasing before our God by reading a secular how-to book? Or how to be godly parent by reading Dr. Benjamin Spock's child book, The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care? For those of you who are old enough to remember that book, you may also know that the fallout from its permissive, child-driven methodology has been negative in many directions. But we should not be surprised. God's ways are always the best ways. And as we began to pursue God's ways, the old man, with the sin that remains in our flesh, rises up from within, and we feel rebellion in our bones. This is because we have a natural love for worldly wisdom. It is a balm to our flesh. And so when we turn to the word of God for instruction in righteousness as obedient children, we must do so informed by the whole counsel of scripture and with humble and teachable hearts. We are seeking a balm for the soul, not for the flesh. However, we can only rightly apply the truth of Scripture as we walk in love and are motivated from a regenerated heart, a heart of flesh, which brings us to the second principle. We need to apply God's principles, God's way. When we turn to the Scriptures and find and take hold of His principles and start making application, we need to do so according to all that he has revealed. What do I mean by this? And perhaps a negative example is helpful here. Let's take a typical husband who has a growing scriptural conviction that he is called to be the head of his family. So far, so good. He realizes things are not going well in the marriage and things are not going well in the family. And so he begins this reformation program by issuing commands and making demands. He points to his wife and says, read Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then ask her, what's your problem? Can't you read? Hopefully no man has done that here. He then quickly finds out that it is not working. Why? It is because there is an absence of the fullness of scriptural love that he is to walk in. And because where he sees a chain of command in scripture, there is actually a chain of submission. Joyful, willing, sacrificial submission, motivated by love. He fails to understand there is a creational difference between his makeup and that of his wife. 
and that she will not respond to a browbeating, authority-demanding chain of command. He is not dwelling with her in understanding. He needs to keep reading Ephesians 5 all the way down to verse 25 and see there, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He needs to remember 1 Peter 3.7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Yes, yes, the husband is the covenantal head in marriage and in his family, and that headship comes with responsibility. And so he should take responsibility. By the way, there is a rel- uh, responsibility principle here that we should all be aware of. Those of you with military experience and perhaps those with some management training know that while you may delegate authority, you cannot delegate responsibility. This is why the captain of a ship delegates authority when he delegates authority to navigate to an ensign, let's say, and the ship runs aground and incurs major damage, the responsibility remains with the captain. Responsibility is retained with the office, the position, or the covenantal headship. Returning to the husband, if his marriage is a mess, he is responsible, and he should take responsibility. And he shouldn't take responsibility by going to his wife and saying, why are you making our marriage a mess? God is holding me responsible. That's not taking responsibility. Responsibility is not turning to those under your headship and assigning blame, nor is it taking the blame for their sins. The responsible husband does not turn to his wife and say, you have a problem. If you would only do this, why can't you do that? Rather, the husband turns to God and takes responsibility. He prays to God, saying, Heavenly Father, there is sin in my family, and I am responsible for my family. O Lord, deal with me and teach me your ways. And since we are so prone to get things upside down and backwards, the husband should do this privately before the face of God and be sure not to use this as an opportunity for manipulation. He should absolutely avoid saying or communicating to his wife in any way, Dear, I'm going to take this to the Lord because I'm responsible for all of the things you're failing to do. That would be a manipulative ploy done from an impure heart motivation. It would be an attempt to shift responsibility. Rather, he should feel the weight of his responsibility and take it before the Lord privately. And as he does so, he is availing himself of a means of grace. He is opening himself to the wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is what he needs, and this is what he should desire. And as he does this, he will find that authority and respect flows to those who take responsibility rightly. 
If you are trying to be the head of your family and find that you have no authority and no respect, it is because you are assuming the role of a boss and not the role of a head. You cannot get genuine respect and authority from the hearts of your family by being the strongest, the loudest, or by yelling and screaming. We don't achieve respect and authority by manipulating, by deferring, by cowering, or abdicating either. And we don't get it by grasping, or grabbing, or demanding. When the mother of James and John came before Jesus, he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that, I'm, that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We are therefore not to follow after the example of the Gentiles and lord our authority over our families. We are to acknowledge and accept our responsibility before God. We are to lead by example and by service. We are to lead by leading our family in the word and by our submission to the word, to our Lord, and to the lawful authorities in our lives. We open ourselves to the exhortion of our fellow members in the body of Christ, to the wounds of a faithful friend, and the sharpening iron of a brother. We grow spiritually as we yield to the Spirit, and we grow in holiness as we repent of our sin and seek and extend forgiveness, yielding to that which is right and true. And this yielding, this repentance and forgiveness is lived out with and before our families. We lead in love. We lead in gentleness. We lead with conviction that is shaped by God's word. We apply God's principles, God's way. And so we come to principle number three. We are still responsible for our individual sins. The responsibility of the godly authorities, those covenant heads, in our lives does not absolve us of our individual culpability and responsibility before God. Looking to the example of Job, a man who was perfect and upright and who feared God, we read in verse 5, chapter 1, 
And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his seven sons, according to their number, since they may have sinned. He was taking responsibility for his family and for his children before the Lord. Now, if one or more of those sons had actually sinned, was that son still guilty of sin? Yes. Would the son still need to repent of that sin? Yes. Was that son responsible before the Lord for the sin in his life? Yes. Did Job actually have responsibility before the Lord for his son's sins? Yes. As children grow up in a home where dad takes responsibility, they are learning to imitate biblical responsibility. Selfish abdication of responsibility learns to become covenantally responsible. The selfishness of me grows up into the selflessness of we. When dad says, don't blame me, ask Junior, he is setting an example of irresponsibility, and we should not be surprised when Junior, in turn, blames someone or something else for his sin or failures to uphold his duties and responsibilities. I'm not speaking of a particular Junior. But let's be clear, Junior's sin is not Dad's sin. Junior's guilt is not Dad's guilt. However, Dad's covenantal responsibility remains. Even though Eve took the fruit and ate it and gave it to Adam, his attempt to shift responsibility by proclaiming, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, did not remove his covenantal responsibility before God And so it is that we all fell in Adam, not Eve. This kind of responsibility is is hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. In fact, it is deceptively simple to understand, but radically difficult to implement and embrace because of our pride. We have to swallow our pride and stand up and take responsibility I could give a class right now on, on this, and I can guarantee you would get 100% on the comprehension portion of this exam. Jay, are these your children? Yes. Is this your wife? Sir. You're responsible. He passed. When a father takes responsibility and says, this is my son, I need to take responsibility and does so before the Lord, he is following a God-given pattern and his children grow up learning responsibility and are equipped in genuine biblical repentance. Biblical responsibility is not a zero-sum game. If a father takes responsibility, it does not mean that his wife or children bear no responsibility, nor is there a 50-50 or a 60-40 split or some such It is 100%, 100%. 
and therefore responsibility grows and flourishes and manifests the beautiful fruit of righteousness. And principle number four, we do not duplicate Christ's example. We imitate and obey. Christ died once for all. His covenantal headship as the second Adam was unique and completely efficacious. In him, we are complete. Does this make us any less responsible for our sins? Any less responsible to live rightly in all that he has commanded? Any less responsible to walk in love? Not at all. We are no longer under condemnation, but we are still responsible. We are no longer in bondage to sin, but are liberated to walk righteously before him, including the responsibility to repent of our sins quickly and completely. We are liberated to walk in love, walk as children of light, walk circumspectly, to redeem the time, to be not drunk with wine, to give thanks, to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God, to love our wives, submit to and reverence our husbands. And this is just a partial list from Ephesians chapter 5. When husbands love their wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, we are imitating Christ, not duplicating his atoning sacrifice or propitiation upon the cross. When wives submit themselves to their own husbands as unto the Lord, they are fitting themselves into an ontological chain of submission that Christ gave to us. And so the covenantal bond of love patterned for us is reinforced and handed down to the next generation. When we are baptized, when we are faithful members of Christ's body, members of his flesh and his bones, when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. When we gather at the Lord's table and partake of the Lord's supper. When we remember his body and blood that was shed for us, and we partake of him. We are not reenacting his crucifixion. There is not another death, burial, and resurrection, but there is obedience and there is a great mystery concerning Christ and the church. And there is covenantal faithfulness on display and being lived out. It is beautiful to behold. And great blessings from God are found there. And so with those four principles, let's turn our attention now to Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. And receive instruction that Paul here gives to the church at Rome as he urges them to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their minds and so discern the holy will of God. And let's try to view these instructions as they apply to the covenant entities of the church and the family. <clears throat> Verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. The word translated dissimulation in the King James should also be, could also be translated hypocrisy or pretense. In other words, the love being spoken of here is to be genuine. It is agape love. 
The same kind of love described in 1 Corinthians 13. It is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. And here in verse 19, instruction is given to let this kind of love be present with no trace of hypocrisy or pretense. This is the love that is to characterize the Christian life because it is God's covenant love. And we can infer from the instruction given that it is the kind of love that needs instruction. It would seem that we are perfectly capable of presenting ourselves clothed in agape love that is soiled with hypocrisy and pretense, not having the sweet aromas of sacrifice and a selfless, unconditional outpouring from our hearts. It is the same kind of love Ephesians 5.2 calls us to walk in, and so we should. Let us take a moment, therefore, and ask ourselves, what kind of love am I bringing to worship, even this morning? What kind of love am I bringing to the conversations I have with the people in the church? As the covenant head of my family, is my loving leadership tinged with hypocrisy? If there is any pretense or hypocrisy in our love, then we need to repent and yield to the word of God. Verse 9 also exhorts us to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good, both of which things are well and good. But note that when Paul says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, he is rejecting the notion that evil is defined by what I abhor, and he is rejecting the notion that good is defined by what I hold fast to. Evil and good are objective realities that exist outside of my subjective definition of these things. Good and evil don't change. They are defined by the will of God. And we are to conform our affections to abhor or hate evil and to cleave or hold fast to good. This is a command to our emotions and to our desires. But what, you may ask, what if your heart is in such a condition that you love the evil and hate the good? How will you obey this command? The answer is that we must be born again. That which is merely born of flesh loves the things of the flesh. That which is born of the Spirit loves the things of the Spirit. There is no other way. Verse 10. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. John Piper notes that both of these love words, philostorgos, translated kindly affectioned here, and Philadelphia, brotherly love, are emotion-laden words. And they ruin immediately, they ruin immediately the stoic Christian notion that we don't have to like people, but we should love them. Have you heard that before? Have you ever said, I'm not called to like these people, only to love them? If so, then please revisit this verse. Kindly affectioned or philostorgos is the comfortable, at-home feeling you know 
in a comfortable chair that you've been with for a long time and leads you to say, ah, each time you sit. Or perhaps the love for a companion dog that has been at your side for the last decade and you know, trust, and depend upon. His presence is comforting. It is storge love. Brotherly love, or Philadelphia, describes the blood-thick, deep love that comes with strong family ties. It is protective, loyal, and weeps deeply and agonizingly when there is a death in the family. To these two loves is added the command, in honor, preferring one another. We are to prefer to honor rather than to be honored. We are to enjoy elevating others to honor more than we enjoy being elevated to honor. And we are to avoid showing honor to only one type of person, that is, to the wealthy or the smart or the powerful or attractive or whatever type of person you have a natural affinity for. To become the kind of people who love others affectionately and as family, and the kind of people that prefer to show honor rather than receive honor, we need to to know that God has commanded this, and we need to know and believe that these things belong to the very nature of our newness in Christ. We should therefore pray earnestly and regularly that God would do whatever he has to do to make us more and more into this kind of loving and honoring people. As we do this, we will grow deeper in covenant unity. We will enjoy more and more the blessings of a happy family. We will grow in our capacity as federal heads. So let us be this kind of people that are eager to conduct a regular checkup on our hearts and ask, How am I doing with these two loves? Do I really prefer to honor others? Or do I actually desire to be honored? In doing so, we open ourselves up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we can repent where we fall short and so grow in Christ's likeness. Verse 11. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The New King James Version translates the the first part of this verse as not lagging in diligence. Unless we be given to read this through an overly pragmatic or business-driven lens, we have the compliments of fervent in spirit and serving the Lord in the same verse. We are not to be all about work, efficiency, and productivity. But neither are we to be all zeal and emotion and spiritual fervency. We are to render all in the service of the Lord. We are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. As the covenant people of God, we belong to him, and he is our all and in all. The questions we need to ask in response to this might be, am I lazy or slack 
in any of my daily activities? Do I waste valuable time? Is my heart motivation right and zealous to honor God? Am I doing all things self-consciously before the face of God and as unto him? It is good to read the word of God and to let it flow over us daily. It is very good. It is even better to read the word of God daily and meditate upon it and consider the applications and to hold it up as a mirror to our lives. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Is this not the description of the Christian life? Maybe we should integrate this into our personal mission statements. Our joy is rooted in hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope we have in Christ. It is a hope that carries us safely through every life situation, a hope that looks to a bright future with confidence and looks back on our past with thanksgiving in what Christ has done. And as we see this verse, the tribulation is expected in the Christian life. We're directed to be patient in tribulation, not to be patient if tribulation comes. It will come, and when it does, we are to bear it patiently in Christ and count it all joy. And through it all, we are to continue instant in prayer. In Philippians 4, Paul puts it this way, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So how are you doing? Are you filled with the hope of the gospel that informs all of your life? If now is a time of trials and tribulation for you, are joy and patience there in the midst of the trial that sustain and is carrying you through? How is your prayer discipline? Can you honestly say that you are someone who is instant in prayer? If we are to grow and flourish as a covenant community of God, as families, and as individual members of the body, then we need to be characterized by these commands. Now, verse 13. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. In 1 Peter 4, we read, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Galatians 6, we see, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, 
As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And finally, in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, we find, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. I would contend that the kind of hospitality being commanded here is distinct from, but informed by and related to, the fellowship hospitality we commonly know and practice. We find the motivation for the hospitality commanded to the stranger in this passage from Leviticus given simply as, I am the Lord, your God. The questions before us then are, how are we doing in the areas of biblical hospitality and in meeting the necessities of the saints? Have we grown as a church to a size such that greater organization and intentionality is needed in order to be faithful in these matters? If you have giftings or experience or can share examples of biblical faithfulness in these things, then perhaps now is the time to consider making these known to the body so that we can be edified thereby. We have been blessed greatly by a multitude and a diversity of gifts, and so I look forward to what the Lord will do in this area in the days ahead. In verses 14 through 18, we'll take all at once. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. All these commands are rooted in the freedom we have in Christ, a freedom from our natural selfish preoccupation and exaltation. And much more than that, they are rooted in a preoccupation and exaltation of Christ. They are what happens when our minds are renewed and we are transformed from the inside out by the word of God. And the sanctification of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Backing up to verse 3 of Romans 12, Paul writes, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, purposed to save his people from sin and eternal punishment. God the Son purchased our forgiveness and salvation by keeping the law perfectly, living a life free from sin, and shedding his perfect blood upon the cross. God the Spirit overcame our self-centered flesh, bestowed life-giving faith, and opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ as the center of our new life. Now, it is in this condition, as a redeemed man, a condition of renewed minds and transformed lives that we meet three kinds of people, those who persecute us, those who rejoice, 
and those who weep. And Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, how to treat them. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are going to be treated unjustly and even hurt for Christ's sake. And yet we are called to bless our adversaries and pray for them. And in doing so, our natural self-centeredness must die. But that death will accomplish nothing by itself. It must be replaced by a love for an exaltation in Christ. Through the eyes of faith, we behold and embrace and exalt in the soul-satisfying knowledge of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this is the faith that leads us through this beautiful life as a covenant people of God. Unity of mind. Serving the needy. Putting off pride and conceit. Not returning evil for evil. Honesty on display in all of our dealings. And insofar as we are able, living at peace with all men. Good instruction from a good God. We are a people greatly blessed of our good God. He is our God and we are his people. He has saved us unto himself. He has given us his word, which shows us who he is and what he requires of us. He has given us examples to follow and examples to avoid in his word. And through the stories of his faithful saints through the ages, he has given us examples to inspire us to greater faithfulness in our lives. He has given us indicatives and imperatives doctrine, and practice in all that is needed to live godly lives in Christ. We are complete in him. We lack nothing. Let us therefore be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Our merciful and gracious God, we give you thanks for calling us unto yourself and for loving us perfectly and ultimately in Christ. And we thank you for the revelation of your word, which gives us the gospel of your salvation and instructs us in the way we should go, what is pleasing in your sight, and how we are to make manifest the love of Christ in our families and among the members of the church and in the world beyond as we have considered but a few of these things. We ask that your spirit would take and apply that which is true and useful and good and apply it efficaciously to our hearts, instruct our minds, and empower us to walk in love. Do this, we pray, for the sake of your kingdom, for we ask in Christ's victorious name. Amen.